Hello and welcome to My Boga Conversations. My name is Lee Albert and this is MyBoga.com. I'm here today with Shay Pruger, director and administrator of Ibogaine Revelations. Shay Pruger was introduced to Ibogaine therapy by Eric Taub, who she met while seeking treatment for a suboxone addiction in 2010 while working as a full-time fashion model. Following her own transformation, Shay began an apprenticeship under Lex Kogan at Ibogaine Again's facility in Guatemala and then Costa Rica, eventually taking over as director of the centre. Shay Pruger has trained with Dr. Franco Lopez and Dr. Sofia Artavia in order to learn the necessary medical side of administering Ibogaine. Pruger continued training alongside Erika Florianova, who was director of Ibogaine Again Czech Republic, and learned methods in alternative healing that she utilised to help clients integrate their experience into their day-to-day life. Following many attempts at running large centres with the initial goal to provide Ibogaine to as many people as possible, Pruger took a brief break to reformulate her approach to Ibogaine treatments. She has restructured her modality and is focusing on individually tailored sessions and one-to-one attention from each staff member. This is done through longer stays, a focus on integration and a slower introduction to the medicine using low-wave doses in the initial prep days. Pruger is most notable for opening the first medically supervised Ibogaine Centre in Asia, Ibogaine Thailand. Pruger has EMT training, has AED, CPR and first aid certification and chooses her mentors wisely to facilitate further growth and understanding of Ibogaine. Currently Pruger is also offering low wave dosing as an option for clients alongside a longer stay. Pruger is also one of the co-founders of the Ruth Ibogaine Collective. This is a new and evolving project with the intention of supporting Ibogaine clients and providers while also providing radical inclusion and safe and ethical guidelines for the, for the Ibogaine community. And this, that, of course, that's not all that, that Shay is involved in. She also has a work as a book in progress and will be telling us a little bit about Ibogaine Collective. But uh, with no, without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce Shay and say hi. How are you doing, Shay? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me. God, I'm so glad we managed to get this to happen because yeah, we've had so many technical hiccups. But isn't that really the nature of Ibogaine? It's it's always filled with 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 problems, right? Yes, definitely. It actually fits in with my current week and just how everything's going quite well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you know, I can remember my own first experience and uh, how difficult it was to organize. And I think in some way that's part of the spirit of the plant, is it not? Yeah, I definitely feel like that I've had to learn how to like manage and disconnect from chaos because there's a little bit of chaotic energy that seems to follow this plant around. Yes, and I think maybe it's in a way does it, the plant self protects itself by doing that. It kind of sets up these barriers that you know cause you, that require you to become if hyper conscious to step over and to make it if you like. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it, you know, and I think that it does protect it and it kind of keeps it also a little bit um, reserved, you know, it hasn't become this just like recreational tool because of that one, well, partly because of that reason. Yes, and and uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, I, it, it teaches you patience. Let's put it that way. I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I, I wanted to go. Through, we're going to go through a number of things today. We're going to talk about um, your, you know, one of the things you mentioned was realistic expectations regarding mm-hmm. ibogaine treatment and what is ibogaine actually like, uh, and. Um, we will be covering a, a couple of other things as well. Hopefully we'll be talking about the Ibogaine Collective. So, you know, maybe we'll start with um, expectations. Um, yeah. So what would you, where should we say, where should we start there? Well, 
I feel like the best thing people can, well, providers can do is to set their clients up for being disappointed because I feel like there's so much information online that that doesn't really describe, you know, the experience of Ibogaine very well. Um, you know, we tend to read these reports of these, you know, really intense um, visual experiences where someone got to see their whole life and every single life question they had was answered. And then they maybe slept for a couple hours and woke up and felt amazing. That's what you read about online when you read about Ibogaine and whatever, you know, and people will say that X and X was cured and, you know, this, this huge range of mental health ailments and dependencies and things like that. And in my experience, I've, I've seen floods like that. I've seen a few floods where people really had like profound epiphanies and, and really did bounce back quite quickly. But I would say that it's a very, very small amount of the people I work with who actually get there on, on a first flood. Um, I, I don't, you know, know why some people get that experience and some people don't, you know, I think that some people are just ready for that experience and that's what the medicine gives them because that's what they need. But often what I see are floods that are maybe abstract or confusing or incredibly uncomfortable and difficult, challenging. Um, I would describe Ibogaine as the hardest thing that I've ever had gone through. Um, and, you know, and, and also I think that we, the way that it's advertised um, even, you know, for floods, it's advertised as this sort of one hit wonder. You're going to have this kind of fireworks and light show and then, and then you're going to be good. Right. And I really think that we need to be talking about it in a way where we talk about the fact that it's a process, you know, most people that I see, you know, have these experiences that are challenging and they start to feel better and better each day after their experience. Um, and it really is a process. You know, I see a lot of people, you know, even after two weeks, not fully where they want to be. You know, I've noticed that we usually get phone calls around the three week mark after someone's session with us. And that's where they're really starting to feel really good if they're putting the work in at home, you know? And so it's not, I don't think it's something that, you know, you can just walk into without any prep work without any integration plan or any aftercare plan, regardless if you are coming for psychotherapeutic reasons or dependency reasons, and just, you know, expect to be healed overnight. That's just, it really doesn't work like that. You know, and then in these sort of lower set, you know, lower dose settings, which I've been really fortunate that Claire Wilkins has been teaching me this, this approach, which she has mentioned that she is not a fan of the low wave dose um, wording. She likes cumulative repeated low dosing structure. But with that sort of, um, with that approach too, that can be hard to manage expectations because people are getting doses that they're not necessarily having visions on these doses. They're not necessarily having, you know, huge epiphanies on each dose. It's more of a gradual unfolding sort of a dream within a dream within a dream that keeps unfolding as you go. And so really what we're looking at is a process that can take months um, before someone really gets to where they want to be. And so what I think is that, what someone does before Ibogaine is just as important as what they do after. That's just as important as the experience itself of actual dosing. And that really the process kind of begins, you know, it begins once you're actually done ingesting the medicine. That's when the process begins. 
Right, right. I mean, it strikes me that anybody who's coming for uh, a treatment is so, uh, you know, is in such a, a, a deep suffering with their dependence that, um, you know, any thoughts about uh, working on themselves or whatever is the least of it. It's, it's, it's to get rid of the dependence, I think, is the primary goal. Exactly. And, and it definitely, I think, in Western society, we have this kind of quick fix you know, nature, everything is, is instant in the, in the society that we live in. We have everything at our fingertips with the internet. You know, we don't really have to do that much work for ourselves. If we want something fixed, we call someone and it gets fixed. If it's, you know, whether your internet goes out or whatever it is, we live in this society where it's, everything's kind of a quick fix. So this idea of like a process that could take weeks to unfold where we really have to put, you know, you really have to integrate the medicine into your life and make changes so that, you know, I feel like the medicine always works. It's that, is it, are you working with the medicine? Um, you know, that's, it's very counterintuitive to yes. the way that people are living in Western society. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, maybe perhaps sometimes people need uh, the first session simply to have the uh, space in which to, you know, take a look at themselves and put together uh, a program of self uh, recovery, if you like, um, that would then prepare them for going into maybe another session. Because, you know, prior to going to your first session, uh, you know, you're you're preoccupied, of course, with survival and and all the, that goes with that. Uh, Absolutely. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure where the room there exists for, uh, you know, introspection and, you know, therapy and all of those things that uh, can... It's hard. Yeah. No matter how much we drill it in, like, hey, we want 30 days of prep from everyone that comes to us. We want to be checking in with you and knowing that you're doing this and this. You know, I, I still feel like most people, once they get to us, we say something and they're like, wait, what? I didn't know that or I wasn't aware of this, you know, or that wasn't clarified to me because it didn't. It went over their head because they were so preoccupied before and they were just so intent on the destination of just getting here. You know, that's like such a struggle in itself. Just getting to the Ibogaine treatment is so hard. So, you know, I mean, for me, yeah, my second session was, was so much more profound than my first because I knew what I was getting into, you know, and I was actually able to prepare for it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I completely yeah. agree. So actually, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from and how you came into uh, Ibogaine in the first place. Where, 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 were you, where did you grow up, for example? So I grew up in Iowa. I was born in Utah. I grew up in Iowa. Mm -hmm. um, and I grew up in a really conservative Mormon family. Um, and I really rebelled against that sort of upbringing. Um, and probably, you know, just all the ways that someone in a small town in Iowa could, you know, yeah. drinking whatever drugs I could find, you know, just breaking curfew, that sort of thing. I really didn't like being told what to do. I quickly moved to New York when I was 18. Um, so I, I did like a year of college, dropped out, moved to New York. I was still 18 and um, tried a bunch of different things. You know, I bartended, I waited tables, I went to hair school, I tried to work at a salon, I tried to be a graphic designer. I did a bunch of things at once because it's hard to survive in New York and you can work three jobs there right. and, at a time, you know, and then eventually got picked up as a, as a fashion model. During this whole time of my like beginning in New York, I was definitely experimenting with with a lot of different substances. I was bartending a lot of late nights, even when I had other jobs. So I was drinking every night. Um, cocaine is, is very prevalent in, in a lot of New York's, you know, party culture and fashion culture and bartender culture and, and pretty much every 
culture that I saw in New York, cocaine was very prevalent and accepted. Um, and then, you know, slowly I also had these like recurring migraines and it was a doctor that put me on Vicodin and that just slowly, slowly opiates just kind of became the prevalent drug of choice and it was never intended or anything. I just remember leaving town for Thanksgiving one year and feeling like I had the flu the entire time I was gone. And when I got back, I found some, you know, form of opiates and, and immediately I felt better. And that was kind of my first like, oh, like this, this is a problem that I wasn't, you know, planning on having. So that became, you know, the dominant factor in my life. And, and with fashion modeling, I was traveling all the time. So I was constantly in a state of, of kicking and getting off opiates and then relocating in a new place. And, you know, it, it was really the depression that kept driving me to find them in these new places. Um, so I did that for years and then I got into methadone and that was at like an outpatient facility in London while I was living in London. And was that after London, I Canada or London, England? England. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. And then I left London and I thought I was going back. So I thought that I was getting this long-term visa and would be based there for a while with modeling. And so they sent me back to the States while I figured out my visa with like a month worth of methadone. And I ended up getting a better offer to work in Italy and Milan. And so I ended up getting to this point where I was going to run out of methadone. And I was, and I just remember like, so like so vividly, like how scared I was. And I was in New York and my, my partner at the time had just gotten put on Suboxone. So he recommended that I, that I try to find a provider that would put me on Suboxone. So I found it, I found a therapist who did and that, you know, I switched over to Suboxone, but not without going into precipitated withdrawal for quite a while. That was really hard. And that Suboxone was like the one thing I, that it did allow me to travel because the therapist would, uh, would do these Skype sessions with me and then keep prescribing it. My parents would pick it up and mail it to whatever country I was in. But I did have some problems where like I would be in Asia and customs would pick it up. And I remember like being in South Korea and customs picked up my package and I didn't get my like Suboxone refill and just how, how sick I got, you know, it was, you know, it was like from the movies, you know, Suboxone right. was a new beast for me. It was something I was able to, you know, withstand multiple, multiple detoxes of my own, just kicking up op short acting opiates. But Suboxone was really something that I found that I, that I couldn't handle. And so eventually, you know, I found myself back in New York and I was with someone that had done Ibogaine and had success with it. Um, and they were my partner at the time and they were like, you got to find Ibogaine. And so that, you know, he, he knew Eric Taub, he hit Eric Taub up, Richie as, as he goes by now. And, um, I met him in a coffee shop and he told me that I should fly down to Guatemala. So that that's how everything started for me. Okay, so um, you have uh, uh, yeah you have a long a long a long history of um, of um, you know finding a way to I begin um, and and so now you're in um, in Hawaii right and Costa Rica yes yeah and so how long so how how long have you been set, working in the clinic setting then. So I started in 2011, I believe. Um, that's when I started apprenticing. Um, it was probably like nine months after my first um, after my first treatment. I really, I mean, really for me, the experience of ibogaine was the most amazing thing I'd ever experienced. I, I just, it was beyond anything that I could understand. It made me question what I believed about the world, what I believed in life. 
And it was really just such a prof, I had such a profound eight month journey afterwards. And I didn't have an easy experience. I ignored my provider's protocols about switching to opiate for 90 days to get off Suboxone. I thought that I knew better. I got off for like five or six weeks. So I actually came out of Ibogaine with heavy post-acute withdrawals for about six weeks. I moved to my parents' basement during that time and just microdosed every single day. And about six weeks later, the withdrawals stopped. And then I went through this really like transformational eight months and it was challenging, but looking back, it was exactly what I needed. And it put me on this path that I'm on now. So even though I had a very difficult Ibogaine experience, it was exact, it was the exact experience that I needed, even if I didn't really, you know, see it at the time during those post-acutes and everything, but I couldn't shake that my actual experience, you know, I wanted to go deeper with the medicine. It, just it, see, it was just so enriching for me, everything I got out of it in the long term. You know, what I got out of it six months afterwards, what I could tie back to my experience was just so fascinating to me. So I really harassed Lex, who had treated me until he would, until essentially he agreed to train me. Nice. So I ended up buying down um, and going back and helping him out with his centers for quite a while. Right. So the, 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 you mentioned actually earlier that you were dealing with depressions. W- were those depressions, did they come on as a result of using or was it? Or were they something you had always had before? I, I think, you know, I always definitely like struggled with, with the world and how, my, how I felt about the world and always turned to like creative outlets to deal with, you know, some of my unhappiness growing up. But so it's, it's hard to say, you know, I I think that definitely it was definitely substance induced for sure. Mm. But I also think that there was some layer of just being unhappy that, that drove me to use opiates anyway. Definitely that and trauma as well is what, what made me, you know, so interested and attached to opiates is that it just, it covered, you know, trauma and, and my unhappiness so well. But definitely, like, the level of depression that would come up after getting off of opiates was definitely induced by substances. And that was something that I began really did eradicate for me. Good, good. No, I was going to say, I mean, my own experience with uh, Ibogaine is, has been that... Um, what we sometimes see in our session, if you like, is um, a roadmap, if you like, back to health. And it's, you know, it's kind of like, a, well, here you go. This is the way you need, this is what you need to do now. And you're going to have to work on this. And it can take you many years before you arrive where you need to arrive, right? Where exactly. You want to arrive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. So you're talking, we're talking about expectations. So how do you can, you know, do people have any awareness of that when they come into, into a treatment or are they just coming in, get me, you know, get me off my, my substance or whatever. It, that- it's hard, you know, like, again, no matter how many times we, we try to say to people, like, we try to set them up for, for what this may, might be like for them, you know, and we don't know what it's going to be like for them either, you know, and so there isn't that much we can guarantee about an Ibogaine treatment, except that if someone is coming off of short-acting opiates, we know that Ibogaine will help their withdrawals, you know, and everything else is kind of an unknown. And at this point in my career where I am doing a lot of this, like, accumulated low, cumulative low-dosing strategies, a lot of times I don't even know it when someone shows up, like if I'll be flooding them or if we're going to work with the, with this low dosing approach. And so it's really, really hard to tailor the expectations. And I feel, you know, I'm, I've been like 
playing with this idea in my head of like making up, up a bunch of like video guides and then also like um, written guides. Mm. So for people who like to read and for people who like to watch videos, I like to read over watching videos, but I know a lot of people like to watch videos sort of to get people, I don't know, so that they have something they can, they can actually go back to and see, you know, like repeatedly before a session, because it, it really is, it's just managing expectations is so, so hard. And I, I do feel like that, you know, I mean, you know, recently when we, we work in pre-booked like blocks of time and we work with one person at a time, but, and we, we have been taking people for longer. So most people, we, we encourage people to stay two weeks and that allows us to actually see people leave in a better state because I got really tired in these big centers where people were staying for five to six days or whatever, of seeing people leave in these states of just, you know, kind of unknown, you know, some people, it was hard for them to even, you know, get to the airport because they were still so weak. Other people really hadn't come out of their gray period yet, you know? And so the longer we have people stay, the more we can kind of get people to a place where things are starting to come together for them. And so that, that helps us a lot. But even then I still feel like, you know, people want that, what they read online, which is just this one hit wonder, everything's cured all at once. And we really need as a community to make it clear that this is a long process. You know, we know that norivigane stays in the system for about 90 days. And this is a process that in involves a lot of work too. You know, it's not easy. This is not an easy process. And these experiences that people have when they are like that, they're, they're not that common. You know, you can have those experiences. You can definitely get there on the medicine I have. Um, but I've also had very confusing floods. You know, I've had, I've had both. Right. I mean, I think one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that there's a certain element of the provider community that is uh, focused on, you know, making money and and, 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 and espousing unre unrealistic expectations. I think that's doing a lot of harm. And so, you know, how, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we, I see that we there are these kind of big flashy centers that focus on, you know, hey, we've got this nice setup, we've got a pool, we've got, you know, this luxury setting and pay this amount of money, come for five or six days and leave. And and I see that a lot, you know, and I've actually, I've been like, I've tried to work with two investors who wanted that sort of thing. So I've actually tried to open centers with two separate people who um, really were focused on making money and they wanted these flashy centers and they were focused on all of the wrong things. And it didn't work out with either. Um, luckily, by the second time, by the time the second one came around, I noticed the red flags and cut it off before it actually got to like the you know process of opening anything. But the first time was a letdown because I thought that I was going to be, you know, working on kind of my dream center. And it ended up being this, how, how can we can make money and not, you know, how can we actually help people? And, nice. you know, this idea of, you know, taking five people within a week, you know, that is like crazy to me now. And so I've really, I've, I've really reformulated from the way that I was working before and the way I was trained to work. It just didn't, it wasn't sustainable for me and it wasn't sustainable for my clients. You know, I didn't think that the clients were getting the most out of what they could too. And I do see it in the industry a lot. The other thing I see in the industry are these false promises. You know, we see people that are saying we can get you off Suboxone without you without you switching to a short-acting opiate, which is a complete lie and a scam, you know? And we see that people are saying, you know, we can cure X and X, and it's, you know, it's 
what have I seen? I've seen like, we can cure HIV, yes. we can cure, you yeah. know, these, these these things, cancer, these things where it's like, well, you can't say that. That's like, it's so dangerous to say something like that. And, and what is the end goal? I mean, the end goal has to be that they're trying to make money, that they're just trying to get people to come into the center and leave. And that's, that's really dangerous. You know, I feel like there's a lot, you know, the, the things that go on in this industry, you know, some of it, I think like that is just like, you know, there, there's no good intentions with what's going on with that. I think there are people that are trying to do good work and they're just not trained well enough or they're not well enough informed and they have the right intentions. But then there's the other side of the coin where there's people that actually just have the intention where they see that this maybe is, I guess what I saw with it, with the, the two investors that, that I had this issue with, they saw like an industry of people that didn't really know how to run businesses you know, because because I'm not a business person, I don't really know how to run a business. Right. And, and they th- they kind of felt like that was the void. Like if someone came in there that knew how to make money, they could make a lot of money off this thing, you know, that had maybe that and also that had helped them. They, you know, had also had experience, you know, had experience where it got them off whatever medicine it is. But we have to whatever dependency they had. Sorry. But we have to remember that a lot of these people, like, yeah, like maybe it got them off opiates or it got them off whatever, whatever it was. But this is a continual healing process. Like you were saying years, I'm still in weekly therapy, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's not something, you know, I think that we have a lot of people in this industry who are in various stages of their healing. They have a lot of unresolved issues and they're just thinking after one session, they can go and open a center and and everything's going to be fine. Yes, yes, um, that that's quite uh, it, that's quite an illusion. That idea that you know you, you've come, you've had a life of problems, and you can suddenly go off and start becoming a treatment center um, without any you know working on oneself. I think everybody, as you said, is individual. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some people come into it, you know, from a, from a, a place where they've been working on themselves and they have all these experiences. They, ha- they already have a, a set of tools. So right. that when they come out of it, they can apply those tools to the plasticity and uh, of the mind, if you like, in the early days. Uh, you know, because one of the great things, of course, about Ibogaine is the way in which it allows you to re uh, you know to change your habits in the early days if you take a good look at perhaps destructive behavior and so forth so i guess what you're saying is what we're both saying is that um some form of um one-on-one or you know introspection in the days not following the treatment uh, would be important for setting the stage for going forward right absolutely yeah i think there's a lot of different ways that this sort of introspection or aftercare integration, however you want to call it can look, but everyone needs a plan, you know, that, but you know, when, when I see people return back to destructive habits quite quickly, it's when they've had, when they have no plan and they're going right back to the setting that they came from, you know, I'll work with someone who is going back to a destructive relationship or, you know, a place that they're really not happy where things just really weren't going well. And they're not, they don't have any plans to make any changes. You know, I think that, you know, we really, and it's hard to say because as a provider, it's like, how many skill sets do I have? You know, I think we need teams that are helping people through this process because I can't wear every hat. You know, integration is not my strong suit. You know, I, I understand the medicine and dosing it very well. But when it comes to integration, I, I rely on hiring other people to work with to work with our clients. So I think we also need to look, you know, realistically at, at what 
you know, at building teams of people that can actually help our clients get to where they need to be. So, so I'm interested when you when a client approaches you, do you have a process where, where you orientate them uh, before they come so that they are, uh, if you like, um, they have realistic expectations? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first conversation that I have is is pretty, it's pretty, you know, typical textbook, you know, we go through their, their basic health, you know, anything that has come up in the past, um, we go through why they want to do begin in the first place. Um, I usually, what I found is that a lot of times people just need to talk and get a lot of things off their chest before we can move like any further and even, even start talking about prep. A lot of times I've found that people just have a lot to say and they just need to say it to someone. So I usually, you know, start with just kind of why, why are you calling me in the first place, you know, and, and listen to what they have to say, because I can't really actually get to the point of, you know, really evaluating someone and creating it, you know, like a prep plan, you know, until they've really gotten everything off their chest, you know, otherwise they're just, they're distracted from, they're distracted. Um, so I usually try to get to know the person and that like my goal is to build trust with someone so that they're not withholding anything from, from me. So like the one adverse event that my center has dealt with was really traumatizing. And it came from someone that withheld something from us that was in their system and even cheated the drug test that we gave them. So they went really out of their way, um, so that we didn't know that they had amphetamines in their system. Right, right. So my goal moving forward from that experience was how can we, you know, make sure that doesn't happen again, but also, you know, how can we make sure that people feel comfortable telling us anything? You know, I don't want anyone to feel like, you know, we're going to judge them. And then I think that the other issue is that people don't want to be turned away from treatment. And so by expanding, you know, into this cumulative low dosing structure, we are, we've been able to also take people that w- wouldn't necessarily be able to flood due to other ver- various factors. So I usually evaluate someone and try to create a plan of how many days do I think I can actually work with this someone, you know, is it minimum, you know, I feel like I need at least nine days, but I tend to like, you know, the two week structure. Um, from there, I try to get them on the phone, you know, with someone else from my staff. So they at least can connect with someone else that is working with us. That's usually my partner, Ben, who's been working with me now for about three and a half years and has become a fantastic provider. So that there's at least, so it's not like they show up and there's, you know, there's other people that they've had, you know, no relationship with beforehand. Um, I then have like this crazy long, like encyclopedia of prep that I've made this guide and I individually tailor it to each person and I'll send it to someone and then go over it with them. And really it it goes over like diet and supplements and, you know, here's what I want to see you intaking. And also here's how long you need to be off other things. And when it comes to, you know, someone getting off something, I've been working on actually creating guides to help people get off things because we're seeing a lot of issues with fentanyl. And then obviously there's, you know, what we've seen is that some people are really scared to even get off amphetamines for the required amount of time. So, you know, I try to build an actual relationship with someone over the course of at least 30 days. And during that time, I also try to build like a a path to treatment because I feel like once you have like that end goal, like that light at the end of the tunnel, that's when you can like start making progress with someone. It just like alleviates like the complete hopelessness that there might, you know, that people feel but at the same time, we need time to prep people for treatment so that it's safe and so that, you know, so that we can actually get somewhere with someone. 
So what I'm actually worry, wondering is, uh, you know, do you get someone coming to for treatment who really has no interest in the integration side of things, no interest in, you know, the, the dealing with the issues, only wants to get off whatever it is they are, they can't, uh, you know, they're taking, and, um, and you know, and, and really is not open to listening to anything you have to say. Yes. Do you get that happening, and, and what do you do? Yeah. Um, yeah. So one thing that I have gotten comfortable with over the last several years is that I don't have to give anyone Ibogaine. I used to feel like I had to, you know, accommodate everyone who called me. I had to, if someone showed up for treatment, I had to flood them. And I really felt this pressure. And I, I really have become comfortable with the idea that one, not everyone is the correct fit for our program. And if they're not the correct fit for our program, where else can I recommend that people go to? So I have like a short list of people that I trust that I will then refer people to. You know, if they're not clicking with me in my program, maybe they'll click with these places. Hey, here's a place that doesn't necessarily have integration, but I know it's safe. I know that they have the right protocols, you know? So that nice. is one thing with referring people elsewhere. And also, you know, if someone shows up and really they weren't honest with us or they said whatever they could to get here. I don't have a problem sending someone home without giving them medicine or without flooding them. So I've really had to get comfortable with, with saying, with just knowing that I don't have to give anyone Ibogaine. And that's actually alleviated so much anxiety in my like day-to-day -day life and work because there's times when it's just, when it's just not the right fit. And, you know, I used to want to give as many people as possible Ibogaine, but there was a lot of pressure that came in that came into that too. And I've really gotten comfortable with the idea that not everyone's the right fit for our program. So I'm definitely working less than I used to work, but I feel like the quality of treatments is much better. So uh, in your sort of intake, do you, um, do you find then that from the first conversation to the time in which they come for treatment, that there's a change in uh, understanding and, and focus and orientation and that when they actually are having the treatment, there's a certain, if you like, apart from just the getting off the dependence, there is this mm. other awareness of the the gravity of, of the, the, the life changes that they may have to go through. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We do see that. And sometimes I feel like, unfortunately, that awareness comes a little bit too late. You know, I've definitely worked with a few people who you know, that awareness came, but it came a little bit too late. It came after they went home and, you know, already started to kind of go back to old, old habits. Um, you know, not every session is perfect. Um, mm. you know, and sometimes, you know, there's people that I've told that, Hey, I, I don't think you're right for us, or I don't think you're ready to come to our program, you know, and they'll call literally two or three years later. And, I can think of two people who fit that profile right now and they're like, Hey, now I think we're ready now, you know, or I think I'm ready now. And the person I'm talking to really is different than they were two or three years ago. And so there is something about holding off on some people because I have seen people make, you know, major changes in those couple of years and come back to us later. And it's like, okay, now, now I'm working with someone that I feel comfortable working with, you know? Um, and I have worked with people where it did seem like it was a good fit. And, you know, unfortunately, they went home and fell back into old habits and called us and realized, like, hey, I think that I came into this the wrong way. You know, I had these expectations that 
I, I had them, I, you know, people have expectations no matter what, that's people are going to have expectations. So course, there's certainly a few people that we've, we've worked with more than once. And these are people that I think really have put the work in the second time or are, are preparing to put the work in the second time because they're preparing to come back to us right now or whatever it may be. So we definitely see both sides. I mean, the, I've tried to create a screening process that really works with people that are ready to be here, but you know, the, the screening process isn't perfect and, and life isn't perfect. You know, we can't no. really, it's hard to prepare people for something like Ibogaine. It's an ineffable thing, you know, so we're going to run into issues no matter what. So, so can you just tell me a little about your center? How many people come at a time? Is it just one person and how long do they stay? Yeah, so usually we're working with about one person at a time. Every once in a while, we'll take two if it really is um, a good match. Um, sometimes we'll have someone come, you know, and during the last few days of someone's um, integration. Um, but we're not, we don't, what I'm not doing right now is taking like, you know, two or three people at a time who, will, who are all going to be worked with in a week. So I really want, you know, the one-on-one -on -one attention. And so I have a smaller staff. I'm working with like, you know, I think, I think it's like five to six people like acute, you know, acutely who are involved in the process and they're really getting this one-on-one -on -one attention. Um, every once in a while, yeah, we'll take two people that come together because it really felt like that was a good idea. And there's been a couple of times that I've done group rates where we do have a group of like four to five people coming for psychotherapeutic reasons. But with even with those groups, we're only working with two people during a week and then the next two will come in. So it's more of like a group rate over like, you know, an extended yes. like four, four weeks or something. So yeah, I'm just, we have, we really, we, the first like couple of days we have someone, we're not doing any medicine. We're not, we're really just focusing on diet supplements, getting outside, being in nature, getting to know people. Um, that's always how we spend the first couple of days with opioids. We're always um, stabilizing for at least 96 hours before we start working with any medicine. Um, and yeah, we just slowly sort of, you know, what I like about the longer stays is that I'm not forced to flood anyone because I need them to be recovered to get on a flight by a certain time. And we've had people stay longer. We've had people stay for three weeks, four weeks. Um, you know, we've, it, it, a lot of people end up extending their stays once they're with us because they realize they want more time to either microdose or just integrate or whatever it might be. So um, there are times that we have people get like, you know, vacation rentals nearby or things like that and, and actually stay and kind of work with us, you know, remotely one-on-one -on -one or remotely. We send a staff member to check on them every day because they've decided to stay longer. So yeah, but really, I really am only working with about one person at a time on average. And what is the total duration of the stay on average? normally about two weeks two weeks okay and it's medically supervised yes it is yeah so you're offering treatments then in costa rica i understand and can you tell me what's the environment like there it's a it's, it's obviously a nice place to be yeah we've always stayed in the mountains near near like the tennis area so that's about about 30 minutes from san jose so the temperature is a little bit more mild it's not as hot and tropical we we did try to work kind of on the coast like in a more popular area once but it, it was just really busy and touristy and it didn't feel it didn't feel right so um we're usually it's we're in the mountains it's a mild <clears throat> mild climate um small town and yeah we have it is medically supervised we have a doctor we have a nurse paramedic and then we have a few other people that are there for support staff integration and, and that sort of thing we're pre-booking our stays so like 
when I'm in Hawaii, and in Hawaii I do a lot of consulting, I help people with microdosing, and I work on the collective that I, that I co-launched and also this book I'm writing on. When I'm in Hawaii, I'm usually prepping you know, these pre-book times that we're doing in right. Costa Rica. So actually, that's now that you've brought it up, maybe you can tell us a little bit about this book you're working on. Does it have a title? I don't have a title for it yet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 hard to write a book, is what I'm learning. <laughs> yes, and tell um, me, what's the what is the theme of the book, or how will it be structured? So the person who approached me about writing this book um, really thought they had needed ibogaine treatment for themselves um, for a prescription opioid um, prescription opioid treatment, right? And they really tried to find information about Ibogaine and just couldn't find realistic information. So they kept hearing, you know, these like one hit wonder stories. Oh, we can treat you straight off this, this medication they were on, which actually they needed time off of, right? Um, he, they kept getting sold what they thought sounded kind of like sales pitches, right? Um, and I came across this person organically. And what, what they told me is that I was the first person that really kind of laid it out in what they thought was a realistic manner. Like, Hey, actually we have seen adverse events. Here's what it looked like. And, you know, and, and what we're talking about managed expectations and things. And so they said it was the first time that they really got like a lot of what they felt like was real and educational, um, information. So then they actually came to us for a session and, um, and then decided, and they work with, they, they do want to remain anonymous at this moment, but they do, they, they, they're a book publisher. So they, started to put us in touch with um, some book publishers as well, as well as themselves, and started to put this book together. So what they'd like to see is more than one book, actually. And it seems like this first book is they really want to kind of lay out how I got into this work, but also to lay out just kind of the the misconceptions about Ibogaine and just really put like an easy-to-read book out that really talks about Ibogaine in a realistic way so that people who are just, you know, at home who maybe haven't heard the term Ibogaine or they hear it and think it's this, you know, crazy psychedelic can actually read it and start separating it from psilocybin and ayahuasca and can actually learn more about it. So what we've talked about is that I'll probably come up with composite sketches of a few of the clients that I've worked with that represent a few of the ways Ibogaine can heal people. And I'll probably talk about, you know, those sessions as well as talking a little bit about my experience with Ibogaine. And then they also proposed, um, a couple of follow-up books. So like, these are like a little like shorter books about Ibogaine, but a couple of follow-up books where I could go into, you know, more of my story or more of, you know, the war on drugs, where we're headed with Ibogaine in the future and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of like, it's such a big topic that like I had all these ideas of making it into like one book and they were really, um, I don't know, they were really, they really stressed to me that we should really narrow down the topics and just kind of get this first book done and then focus on these other books. So right now I've just been kind of writing about um, how I was introduced to Ibogaine. And really, I think that the best way for me to teach the audience about Ibogaine is to talk about how I learned about it, which was through apprenticing. And so these experiences that I saw people go through. Right. No, that sounds like a really worthwhile endeavor. And uh, the kind of thing that, you know, if could get around on the grapevine might be just what somebody needs to read rather than reading websites that are business oriented. Um, 
So uh, I wish you a lot of luck with that. I, well, something I wanted, I wanted to ask you was that, so when clients leave your centre, do they then yeah. hook up with, um, with some sort of integration specialists or are they, you know, or what, what's their, what, do they have a, a programme for after treatment? Yeah, I, I highly recommend integration therapists. I can't, I can't force anyone into it, but um, there's some great integration therapists. Juliana Mulligan is one of them. Um, I encourage most of my clients to have a consultation at least with her and maybe a couple of other people in the community. And really, you know, that's one thing that I feel like is something people can commit to because it's remote and it's not, you know, it's, you know, these aftercare centers can get quite expensive and, you know, a lot of people just can't devote months of their time to, to aftercare, you know, in an actual outpatient sort of or inpatient right. Um, facility. So, you know, the, the therapy I have found to be really, I mean, for myself, I found therapy to be great. And I feel like if we can find therapists that are open and informed about Ibogaine, you know, um, this is really a really great way to integrate. Um, so that's one thing, that's one thing that I really recommend. I found that microdosing does seem to help people down the line if needed. And so there are people that I will then consult with on microdosing that, you know, further down the line, if they start to hit like bumps in the road or they start to have ruminating thoughts or whatever it might be that they need like a bird's eye perspective of, we usually will set up like a microdosing regimen, which I, I, you know, look at microdosing as very, very small doses. I look at it as 30 milligrams or less. And I think the community talks about microdoses as like, it could be like almost anything and right. you know, these large doses. So I'm talking about very small doses when I'm talking about sending people with microdoses and helping them dose at home, because I do think that it can get quite unsafe to like start taking large doses at home. Sure. So we're yeah. working with small doses, you know, when we are helping people on that route, you know, I'm, I'm talking to people on the phone and we're doing it in very small doses at a time. Um, and you know, I mean, there are great aftercare centers for the people that have the time and money and for people that can relocate, I've seen that relocation really helps people, even if they can relocate for a little bit, um, moving seems to help. I mean, there's so many things that I've seen people do that helps, but one, you know, I really feel like just working with people on finding what they enjoy to do is probably one of the biggest things that helps people. It's nice. what helps me. You know, um, people come out of these dependencies or even if it's a depression and they haven't done anything for fun, they haven't done anything they're passionate about. Sometimes, you know, we worked with one woman who was on amphetamines from the age of eight to 36. So when we asked her what she liked to do after her treatment, she was like, I have no idea. Hmm. You know, she really didn't know. And so we were like just trying to come up with things she could try to see if there was anything that she liked to do, you know, and it turns out she likes yoga and she likes drumming and she likes drawing and she likes all these things, but she, she had no idea beforehand, you know? So I feel like, you know, getting people, you know, there's definitely a ritual to drug use and people get dependent on that ritual, you know, they get a high off that ritual. And so there's definitely something to practices that, that can be done daily that I think are really attractive to former drug users. For me, um, yoga has been really beneficial as well as free diving in the ocean. Um, these are two things that I have found that have like a ritual to them that I like, but they're really, they're healthy. Um, I've also really gotten into martial arts. And so we try, you know, when people are with us, we have a lot of options. 
you know, where we're at. And so we can actually get people into classes sometimes like, you know, whether it's a dance class or it's a martial arts class, we can try to, we try to get people into a couple of things they're interested into while they're with us. So they like have an idea of what it looks like to do something off of substances. And we do try to get people out into the world while they're with us, um, into nature, I think is great. But then we really try to follow up with people once they go home. And it's like, what do you like to do? You know, because it really is filling that time again, that is so hard. Um, just having things to fill that time with. And mm. for me, I like signed up in everything that I was remotely interested in. It was like all over the place. It was like drawing classes, language classes, martial arts, yoga, you know, free diving classes. Like it was just so all over the place. Anything that I was remotely interested in, like rock climbing, anything I signed up in. And then over time, a few things I became really passionate about. And those things became like the overarching elements in my life where it was like, okay, now I want to make sure I can do that every that day. Really and so I'm not going to go off and do this other thing that's going to, you know, limit my ability to do this. So yeah. I think that's one thing is like, aside from therapy is just finding ways for people to fill their time. Yes. I mean, it, it reminds me of Joseph Campbell when he says that we should follow our bliss, you know, and if we, if we have an inkling of what that is, it can be the, tr the spark that transforms our life. But I think part of the problem too, is that sometimes people aren't doing the things they like because there's a, a psychological block or a, a yes. trauma that hasn't been addressed. And so actually they may, they may need to do a little bit of trauma digging before they can actually come up with some things because they may be, you know, blocking themselves from enjoying life. I completely agree. I think so often, and I've said this before in conversations, but whether we're working with someone who has OCD or working with someone who is injecting heroin, the underlying reasons of why they came to us are so similar. We're working with trauma most of the time, you know, and trauma manifests in so many different ways. It can manifest in, you know, using drugs to a detrimental extent, it can manifest into these like ruminating thoughts and really repetitive destruction, destructive behaviors. It can manifest into never getting out of bed and being depressed. You know, it can manifest in so many different ways. And, you know, I think that we need to be really looking at trauma informed therapy when we're, when we're working with Ibogaine, we have to remember that we're working with people who probably have trauma. And I think that's another thing for providers to think about is what sort of behaviors are, do they feel qualified to work with, you know, nice. because you're getting people who have a range of trauma in their life. And, you know, and when they're in this vulnerable process, lots of different, you know, behavior behaviors can come up and like, what are you comfortable as a provider working with? And what do you think you can actually handle? Because I feel like a treatment, if you have, you know, a woman that has had issues, you know, with, with sexual trauma in the past, and you, you know, she goes to a center that's full of men that are not informed on this sort of thing that could end up being more traumatic, you know, adding more trauma to right. the experience. I talked to a woman who had a really traumatic experience in Thailand. She was left alone in a hotel room. She woke up in the hospital. She has no idea what happened. The, the provider disappeared, refused to talk to her. She wow. was there to address opiate dependency and as well as depression. So she had gotten off her SSRIs for like a month beforehand. She had gotten off methadone for a month before and she put all this work to get there. And she has no idea what happened. She just woke up in the hospital. And so she went home with more trauma than before and right. got right back on opiates and right back on the SSRIs and just feels worse than she did before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you highlight something really important there. When people are coming 
to you or to a center and they're they're you know they've been living off their dependence it can actually submerge a great deal of trauma so they're functioning but actually when you then remove the the dependence and suddenly there's all this trauma that maybe starts to emerge or you know reveal itself in different ways so you don't really know what you're going to end up with do you De- definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, yeah, behaviors that come up, you know, whether it's someone who's really controlling because maybe they had something traumatic happen in the past where they lost control. So now they feel like they need to be super in control of everything that happens during their treatment. Mm. You know, we've seen that. We've seen people who can't be alone for even a second, you know, and, and, and boundaries become an issue. There's so many different things that can come up. And also when you're dealing with mental health elements as well, things can come up. So I think that there is, you know, we need to, as providers, need to be a little bit more informed of the types of things that come up during treatments and mm. be aware if we're actually capable of working with these sorts of things. Yeah, so perhaps providers need some form of uh, understanding of of uh, personality types or conditions or trauma-related uh, issues, uh, you know, so that they are able to hold the space for whatever they find Absolutely. themselves coming up against. Absolutely, or at least building a team where it's like, if yes. I don't have certain skill set, here's someone that is good at that, you know, so that you can accommodate that sort of client. Exactly, and that, which is why you know, w- w- you know, the, the the day of a, a single provider with a single client, you know, it's obvious it's what has been the case for a long time in many places. Uh, it isn't really the most um, safe. Uh, can set up, you know, unfortunately, one I person, agree. one client. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw a lot of things go wrong when I was apprenticing, you know, and, and it, it was traumatizing, you know, I feel like I carry a little bit of trauma just from seeing things go wrong, you know, and that has made me, that has made me very cautious now and, you know, in the future, but definitely, you know, I've learned that the things that I, that I saw in the past were preventable, you know, and so, I think, you know, I was very evangelical about the substance. As soon as I did it, it worked for me. So I I wanted everyone to try it. I wanted to work with it immediately. Exactly. And really, when I look at my, like, decade of working with with, uh, Ibogaine, I really don't feel like until, honestly, the last four years that I'm really proud of my work, you know? So I feel like it took this, like, six years of training and learning and really working on myself until I got to a point where, like, I'm actually now giving treatments that I'm proud of, you know, it really took a long time for me to get there. And we've got a lot of people that are excited about the substance for a lot of good reasons, but are just rushing into it really quickly. You know, there's not like a training center for Ibogaine providers, unfortunately, a lot of people just apprentice for a month or three months or don't apprentice at all. Yes, yes. Actually, what I wanted to ask you was, uh, do your clients, do they uh, do any kind of uh, journaling um post session or you know do they have any kind of personal um if you like regime you know for for helping them with their integration uh, afterwards a lot of them do um we always have a blank journal in the room for for people to use um a lot of them journal a lot of them actually ask us to write things down while they're you know if we're while we're working with them like hey write this down for me, or can you record this? I'm going to say this. We've done that for a lot of people. Um, and we definitely encourage journaling afterwards. I, writing for me is so therapeutic. So I feel like writing is, you know, one of the best things you can do. Mm-hmm. Especially, so hard to remember everything that happens during someone's stay, you know, so many things 
come up and so many like you know ideas and perspectives shift and so i think writing is really important so we we definitely and we don't force anyone to do things but we definitely encourage putting down the phone and writing and we also um my my partner ben who works with me is a fine artist so he actually has built um, an art therapy program as well that we've done after people's grade is where they work with him and actually um and go through this like painting program that he's designed Oh, wow. That sounds really good. That sounds great. There's something actually I wanted to mention because from my own experience, um, you know, apart from when one has gone through the Ibogaine experience, you know, there are, of course, other plant medicines such as ayahuasca and even other other medicines that aren't plant medicines, uh, which play a role in in perhaps um, accessing trauma. And I, I, you know, sometimes feel that uh, the Iboga experience in some ways, uh, presents uh, presents uh, presents an image of ourselves to ourselves that we're able to as much as we can take of it, I suppose. But then afterwards, the door is left open then to begin working through various traumas, uh, through what uh, whatever means are out there, and, and including what other uh, you know other plant medicines and so forth. So, uh, do you find many of your clients take that route, or do they just stay with the aboga? Is that it? That's an interesting question. Um, I have a specific group of clients that that seem that work with me, you know, here and there for psychotherapeutic um, reasons that um, that really love ayahuasca. Um, however, I I've always leaned on, and I feel like this is kind of a controversial topic in mm. the industry as well. So where you know on adding other other medicines in like shortly after I began. So well, not necessarily shortly after, but you know, maybe a year later okay. or whatever. Oh yeah. So that is something that I, that I really encourage. I feel like, I feel like everyone should give I began a chance. You of know, course, I totally any, agree with you. You should, you know, I exa- feel like exactly, exactly. When it gets hard, like that's just yeah. like, we know the nor I began is, is there working with, with the individual. We, you know, we know it's still in the system. So I feel like, you know, everyone should give Ibogaine 90 days a chance. And then there, there's many reasons to then explore psilocybin, ayahuasca, this sort of thing. So right. I always encourage like a 90 day period where people really just stick with, with integrating their experience. Because I think that so often in our society, we're trying to find ways to make everything better. And so I hear people all the time being like, what if I take MDMA the week after my Ibogaine experience? And it's like, how, you know, it's like Ibogaine is such a big thing to do. It's crazy to me that we're trying to add on to it. So nice. I really encourage people just to sit with the Ibogaine for the first oh, 90 I days. Totally, yeah, I totally agree. I think actually, you know, for the first year even, one, in a sense, it's such a momentous experience that the very first time one takes it, if it's depending on, you know, if you have a flood dose, I think you, you even out of a kind of reverence to the plant itself, you should really try not to, to touch uh, yeah, anything I else. Yeah, I completely anyway. land on that side, of, of, side yeah. of things as well. That's exactly how I feel. But I have seen that I have seen people successfully later on work with with ayahuasca and psilocybin, and I've and I've also seen people really you know stick with iboga and and microdose with it here and there. They've come back for other floods. We definitely have a handful of clients that come to us every so many years. Um, we have a handful of clients that reach out to us to microdose you know every year or so for a month or what, however long it may be. Um, for me, like definitely Ibogaine is my medicine. I, I sort of lost interest in, in any other substance once I started working with Ibogaine. I've recently become interested in ayahuasca, but I don't really feel like a huge desire to rush into it or anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've seen, I think that 
I think everyone has a different modality that's going to work for them. And I think right. I begin to big thing to do and to like give it some space to work, you know, to actually work. Absolutely. Yeah. To work with it. But I, sorry, you, what was that you said? Oh, I was just saying that everyone is, is, is different. What works for myself doesn't always work for everyone Absolutely, else. Yeah. And I think if you're in tune with the plant, it has its own way of guiding you in the direction that's good for you. Yes, so uh, that'll bring us on to the next topic, which you mentioned before, the Ibogaine Collective. Can you tell us a yeah. little bit about that, please? Yeah, so there were several of us in the industry um, that that decided to launch this collective. Um, we had, you know, I had heard, for example, the, the woman that I, that I cited who had been abandoned at a hospital. Um, I had also heard of other reports of this happening in the industry, um, you know, and even once is too many times, but I, I heard of it happening a few times where people were just dropped off. Um, and there were a couple of other people that, you know, had were aware of actual abuse, abusive practices that were happening at centers, um, sexual abuse. And the, there was a group of us that came together and, and we just decided that it, we had had enough, you know, and, and really as a woman in this industry, I feel like it's been hard to find a voice in this industry. I feel like I've always been like attached to a man in some way in the industry, like, you know, like, oh, it's, it's Shay and so-and-so, or even the investors who have come to me to open up centers were always men. And so I feel like it's been really hard to really find, like to be recognized as my own entity and to find my own voice. And I've almost had to be a little more abrasive and, and build this sort of personality to, to actually have a voice in this industry. Um, and there, there were these other women and, who felt the same. And I think it's, I think the appropriate way to word everyone in the collective would be women and genderqueer. So we got together during COVID when, when no one was working and we decided to put together the root Ibogaine collective, which it's ibogainecollective.com. And we have a lot of things we want to do, but the first two things that we're focusing on are one grievance reports for, for clients so that clients who have not been treated well, whether it's ethically or abusively, or they leave in withdrawal, whatever it may be, can reach out to us and connect. We can actually support them. And then the the second project that we're working on is um, provider support. So we're going to have a provider support meeting in March. Um, I don't have the date on me, but I can let you know what that date is going to be. I know that we just decided on a date the other day, but I don't okay. have it right on me. But um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we realize that providers need self-care too, you know, and there, there is a history of providers, you know, as we were talking about earlier, not addressing all of their trauma, all of their issues. There's, you know, providers that end up using again, and, and they're ashamed to come out and ask for help because they've, you know, built this personality up in the industry. And so we've, we've, seen things like this happen in the industry for a long time. And as a woman, it's, there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of great people in the industry, but there's also a lot of people in the industry that, that, you know, base themselves, you know, that are just creating rumors and character assassination and they're doing everything they can to just get clients and slander other centers. And they're really saying like, my way is the right way and no one else knows what they're doing. There's just like this kind of ego, alpha male sort of thing I've seen in the industry for a long time. And so we've launched this collective to sort of shift the industry, you know, hopefully shift some things in the industry for at least people that want to see that shift. So um, the, the main goal is radical inclusion. And we hope to also put out, you know, Juliana and I have already put together a guide of how to find a safe and reputable center 
right now we're putting together a list of red flags for people um, okay. that they can access um, because that seems like it might be a little bit more useful than just calling a center and asking questions. Anyone can answer the questions so that, you know, they can gather a client, but their red flags feel like it might be a little bit more useful for people to, you know, steer them clear of places that might not be safe or um, therapeutically safe as well. Um, right. And yeah, and, and really, I mean, it's it's a huge, huge thing to tackle this. There's so many things we want to tackle with this collective. So we're starting out with these two projects that we, we felt capable of devoting our time to um, right, right I, at the beginning. Sorry to interrupt. So I just want to check with you. The, your website is ibegainrevelations.com and yes. the collective is ibegaincollective.com. What's Juliana's website? Juliana is, I, it's intervision, intervision.ibegain.com. Okay, good. So just so we have all those clear. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, no, so, yeah, go ahead. So you're saying you have those objectives. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we have those first two objectives. So those are what we really felt like we could devote our time to right now and that we could actually realistically tackle. You know, I mean, it's it's a huge thing to everything we want to do with the collective is a very large long-term project, but you know, it's, it's, I definitely, you know, there's so many times even just in comment threads on, on Facebook where someone who, you know, doesn't even provide Ibogaine who maybe has done Ibogaine once and is a male is like so abusive in the comments to, to females that work with Ibogaine. It's like, where is this coming from? You know, and right, it right. happens like on such a regular basis and um, it's, it's getting, it's getting old. I'm tired of it, you know, and I want to see more equal representation in the industry. Mm. Um, when you look at most of the, the conferences that happen, that happen, it's, it's mostly, it's mostly males, you know, right. there's been lots of conferences where I know Juliana has actually, Juliana, you know, is a very like dynamic go-getter. She's very proactive. She'll actually write the organizers and be like, why isn't there one single female talking about Ibogaine on your panel? Um, so this happens a lot, you know, and there, you know, there are less women in the industry and I'm not sure why that is, but there also are women in the industry that are doing good work. And I think that we have a lot to offer as well. And so what we're trying to strive for is radical inclusion and just really giving a voice to people who, who don't usually have a voice. Yes. I mean, you mentioned there about, you know, um, forums and whatever chats and where people are being abusive. It reminds me of the I Began list in the early days. Um, there was constant, uh, there were constant attacks on people coming from people who were getting treated or um, hadn't had treatment or were looking for treatment. And it seemed to be, uh, you know, a, dis a part of the whole dysfunction of, of dependence. And, Absolutely. It, uh, you know, and I, yeah. I like some of the people you're referring to they may have they may not be dependent or they may have something going on but they may not be dependent at the moment but they're still living with the same behavior patterns they had when they were dependent so they they're really their relationship to, to i began is more of a parasitic one rather than a healing one yeah i think that i began you know again, it's so good to, to be in therapy and to really work through your trauma. Otherwise, you know, psychedelics, I think can, you know, boost the ego. And, and, and also I begin, isn't going to, you know, eliminate someone from being an asshole, you know, like right. there's so much work that people have to do on themselves to get to a good and compassionate place. So, exactly. um, yeah, I see like slanderous comments all the time. I hear, you know, there's so many rumors that I've had to deal with, even for myself, you know, I've, I've dealt with crazy rumors, uh, you know, that people were saying about me when I wasn't even the in the country that people were saying something happened. And it was like, I don't even live in that place. Right. Where is 
coming from, you know? And then I've actually had to like, literally like go through and show like, you know, like credit card receipts and photos of like, no, here, really, I am in this location right now. That story is, is completely false. And it's, it's really like traumatic to go through this sort of like character assassination. Um, and it just, it happens way too often. It's not, I want, I think that like, you know, the, the community needs to heal as a whole, you know, and that's the only way we're going to get better. And this other thing of covering up adverse events is something that I've noticed too. You know, there's a lot of providers who, who won't admit on the phone or they won't admit to people that yes, they've seen things go wrong where, you know, I might know differently because I might've been one of the people they called when something did go wrong. And I feel like the only way we can get better as a community is if we actually share when things do go wrong, you know, we have to be able to share knowledge. And there is some sort of, in some providers at least, some sort of like the knowledge that I have is like secret or I gained it and you don't deserve to know it. Or if you don't know it, you don't deserve to be working with the medicine. I know that there people have complained to me that they're working and they're working, someone's on a medication they're not familiar with and they've tried to get information about it by reaching out to providers in the industry who have been working for a long time and they've really just been shut down or been told like, if you don't know the answer, you shouldn't be working with this. And nice. it's like that doesn't prevent harm, you know, like yes. we need to be just more collectively helping each other in this industry. Yes. But I think, you know, uh, on another, you know, uh, when you look at what goes on in politics, for example, uh, you know, I can, you, know, you see, you know, human nature can be a pretty divisive and selfish thing. I think, you know, I, I, recently I've had various reasons to think about the Cain and Abel in the Bible uh, story where, where we see sibling rivalry. And I think a lot of problems actually maybe is that people come from dysfunctional backgrounds and mm -hmm. they, they, you know they haven't had the attention from one parent or another and they've built this whole thing of sibling rivalry creates enormous jealousies and um hatred and in some ways people you know they don't they don't set out they don't they're not interested in uh, dealing with their root problems because they think they don't need to they're good enough uh, they don't you know and so they're taking them into their daily life and and they, they project onto other providers their sibling problems, uh, whatever it is, and they yeah, want to no, see them in the grave. Yeah, <laughs> it's a really good point. Yeah, I see that all the time. You know, so I, I just don't know how uh, realistic is it that we will bring everybody along with us. I, I don't know that everybody's going to be willing to take the journey. I, I agree with you. You know, it's it's a hard like it's like it's like I almost can't even imagine it, you know, like yeah. actually reshaping. But I would hope that there there's some people that at least want to create like a safe network of providers that want to help each other. I've, I mean, I've yes. I've definitely yes. had you know, the thought that there's so many times that I'm working working with a client and there's a few providers that like, I'm always just kind of chatting with when I'm working with people. And for some reason, it just makes me feel safer and more confident to be talking with people about what I'm doing. And just that people, you know, that people relate to the experience of working with, working with Ibogaine. And, but I, but so then when people have come to me with questions as well at like weird hours of the night, I've thought like, wouldn't it be a good idea to have like a safe network set up on like discord or, um, Slack, or like a Slack channel or something where we've kind of vetted the Ibogaine providers that are on it. You know, it's people exactly. that aren't 
monitoring. And really, you know, you could be in the middle of a treatment at two in the morning and you could just ask a question like, hey, this is what I'm seeing right now. Should I be worried? Or here's a question I have about this med. I'm doing this intake. And you could get feedback from a bunch of providers. I think that something like that would be really beneficial. Yes. Yeah. No, um, I think that's, that's, no, yeah. I think that's really a good idea. And, and as uh, the, the IBGAN Collective, is that open to everybody or is it, to, to, to get, let me just remind me, is that, a, is that, or is that for, uh, can you just say, explain that to me again, please? Yeah, I mean, we definitely launched it to help women and, you know, people on the gender, you know, gender queer and LGBTQI. We definitely launched it to specifically help people who fit into that category okay. because we felt like often, often I was getting calls and other people were too of, of people that weren't men who were desperately looking for a provider they felt comfortable with. And they had only been talking to these like, you know, kind of sales people, you know, salesmen, alpha male personalities. And so they were just trying to find someone they felt comfortable with. So we definitely launched it to address a specific population of people. But at the same time, we are striving for radical inclusion. So it is open to to everyone as well. Okay. But I think what you suggested before, uh, you know, where you have fed it, it reminds me a little bit of Gita, but I think perhaps the, the Gita's aims are very good, um, but it does appear to be bedeviled by uh, politics and administration. Perhaps something yeah. on a simpler level that you, you know, where you set up, for example, a, a, play, a location online line where providers can come together who are if you like brought into the group uh, on the yes. recommendation of at least one or two other members and so you I, build yeah. up a, a good strong community yeah and people can ask questions without mm. feeling bad that they have to ask a question you know there's a lot of meds that i haven't worked with i still mm. ask questions all the time hey i haven't worked with this great this idea blood, you know what what protocols do you use when you work with it you know, there's tons of things that I haven't worked with, you know, and there's a lot of new meds out there as well. So I think that it would be good. Yeah, I agree. Like you've been vetted by, you know, one or two people you brought into the group. There's an anti-bullying, anti, you exactly. know, like some sort of rule thing you sign on to. And you, you know, if you break that, you get a warning or something before you're kicked out. But, you know, we've got this community of people where at any hour you could write in and ask a question or ask for help during a treatment because something seems off or you're just dealing with something that's difficult. Yeah, and I hope that's something that, you know, you, maybe yourself or, uh, you know, Juliana or Claire or somebody will take yeah. up on pick up on. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, w I had a note here in my notes and I just wanted to say, you know, uh, speaking for myself, the Iboga journey, I think, is a very is a deeply spiritual one. Uh, I, I I'm not sure if I'm able to say that uh, for everybody, but I, I I feel that's that it is because it does connect us to the ancestors and to our higher self and to all kinds of spiritual dimensions. Um, and surely the goal of all of that must be, if you like, to raise us up. Yes. You know, so if we're coming in from a purely materialistic, uh, you know, comfort uh, orientated um, perspective, I, I, it's not going to work, is it? Absolutely. No, I agree completely. Mm. Um, but it's been, it, I really enjoyed our talk. I'm so glad we were able to get together because yeah, definitely. <laughs> it was so <laughs> difficult to get everything organized. I'm busy. I apologize. No, no, no. But uh, how did you find the IBGAIN conference? Uh, was it last weekend? Yes, it was last weekend. Um, you were speaking last weekend, right? 
Yes. Yeah. I did speak a couple of times last weekend. Um, no, I really enjoyed speaking. I, I, it was, I definitely want to speak more. Um, that's the only, the second time I've been invited to speak at something, but I definitely, um, I felt honored to be included. There were a lot of people that I really look up to that were speaking. Um, and that also, you know, also were speaking and I thought it was really fun to speak with people about Ibogaine. I had a good time. So what was the name of it again? The conference? I mean, I think it was just called the IBM conference, but it was launched by that microdose group. Yes, microdose yes, Alpha. yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I was found it interesting and uh, it was interesting to see the, 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 the different characters involved. It shows you how disparate, you know, a group we are. We are very, it is a very spread out <laughs> group. And, um, yeah. But I mean, what is interesting from that conference was the fact that uh, I suppose that the amount of money that is involved in getting Ibogaine approved and so on. And so it could be a while before that happens. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like um, we have all these things like that we've just been talking about now that can be worked on in the community right now, you know, wherever Ibogaine is being practiced. And so we should be definitely working on our own models, you know, because it, it could be a long time before we see, you know, this this this, the way that it's administered change. Yes, well, uh, Shay, it's been really great talking to you, and I'm really glad you're writing these books because you've obviously you. gained a lot of knowledge uh, and fine detail in your practice over the years that you have been uh, working with Ibogaine, which, you know, points out straight away that nobody really should be going from treatment to provider uh, in a short space of time. It's just simply not ethical, actually, in some I, ways. I agree, yeah. In fact, I will say really quickly, when I went to Thailand and I did my first treatment, I I had apprenticed for six months. I mean, I was terrified. Like it was so obvious to me that even after six months, I was not ready, you know, like to be running my own center. Like I, it was just, I remember that I like immediately had like three other providers on Skype and I just felt so scared to be making these choices. You know, we're, we're, I mean, I have like a, it's like a mutual consent contract that I have my clients sign with, sign with me. Here's what you can expect from us and here's what we expect from you. But it's like you really are taking on someone's life when you're working with someone, you know. And so that was like very clear to me that first night in Thailand that I had a client and it was terrifying. You know, six months was not enough time for me to be training. Mm -hmm. No, I know. I, I, I mean, and times have changed, of course, you know, back in back in the day, if you like, when all the lists started and things were early days, you yeah. know, you had people going out treating who had no experience whatsoever. And that was considered acceptable because <laughs> exactly. It, it was, yeah. yeah, because the idea at the time was that, you know, these people would die otherwise. That was the thinking. Right, right. And I think that we do have to, you know, I mean, as much as I have some issues with, with my training and definitely think like, okay, I, I do things so differently than the way that I was taught. Um, you know, I'm also grateful for the experience that a lot of these people put in before me because I mean, they did pioneer, you know, it had to, we had to learn how to work yes. differently. Somehow. And so, you know, it was, even if it wasn't safe, you know, it did teach me how I don't want to work and I don't know. I do feel like a lot of these people from the very early days that were just throwing medicine at people, you know, they did pioneer kind of this path now of, of what we're looking at, which now Absolutely, there's a lot. Yeah. So, yes. And, and, you know, they worked with what they had at the time and they came up with protocols which were refined and we've learned a lot from that. Um, 
so, but there's probably today in this environment, the idea of someone working on their own is less attractive than it would have been back then. Definitely, um, I can't. Yeah. I can't imagine just being on my own either. No, no. Point, yeah. no it's a, it's a scary thing to have somebody, uh, you know, in a state of God knows what, and <laughs> you're wondering <laughs> whether they'll recover. But yes, yeah, uh, but, exactly. but uh, you're very brave to have been doing all these things, and it sounds like you know you're really in, uh, enjoying your work, um, as difficult as it is, which is I fantastic. Am, yeah, yeah, yeah and, I can anything else yeah so, so what what do you foresee for yourself in the future then um i definitely would like to maybe train a couple of people i think it would be great if i got you know if i could you know i get requests for training and i I've, i'm kind of like why am i not training people so you know i just i would like to train a couple of people i'd like to finish these books and you know, um, I want to see our collective really take off and actually do, you know, do the things we want to do with it. Um, and I envision, um, actually like right now I'm actually working on, um, sourcing some, um, air layered trees. And so I'm, I'm going to, I'm actually working on grow. I want to grow a boga. Um, so I, I really want to, you know, maybe, you know, in the next 10 years, be able to be extracting my own supply of it. Wow. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, I'll just be able to keep this model going that, that works really well for, for us, which is that we're traveling every few months and working with a handful of people, you know, and then I'm able to come back to Hawaii and still be involved with Ibogaine, but also enjoy my life here in Hawaii. And I, I just want to, I want to see that keep going. But if I were to be able to train someone that I thought, you know, could kind of keep things going for me while I was in and out of Costa Rica, that would be awesome too. That would be kind of like a long-term goal, I think. Well, you know, um, that, that's, you know, I just want to say that, you know, you're, you're a credit to the community and it's great to talk with you because your, your heart's 100% in the right place and you're doing great work uh, and, you know, you're applying yourself to the work and, um, you know, it's fantastic that I can get the chance to speak with you. And I hope a lot of people, people will get to hear your, hear this podcast and hopefully so much. connect with you. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to wish, I want to wish you the very best and thank you again. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. You too, definitely. Have a good, good evening, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Good evening <laughs> to you. Too. Take care now. Bye. Yeah. You too. Bye.